Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. All right, well, hey, we're in the season of Advent and uh, we're looking towards the coming of Jesus and Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be. So turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the Bible, there's, there's two portions of the Bible or two divisions within the Bible. There's the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and there's the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel, uh, this people that walked with God, had God as their king and leader for many, many years. And then the New Testament tells the story of Jesus coming to redeem all the things that went wrong in the Old Testament and have gone wrong with humanity. Isaiah is smack dab in the middle. So if you have your Bible, you can just like almost open it to the middle and you'll, you'll be pretty close to Isaiah. And uh, that's where we're gonna be, Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah nine. Isaiah is a, uh, he's an Old Testament prophet. And a prophet, as a prophet, Isaiah, his job was this. It was to carry the call and at times the burden of expressing the pathos of God to humanity. Or another way to put it, Isaiah's job was to make known the mind of God to all of humanity. That's what his job was. That's what we're going to read. So once you're at Isaiah chapter nine, go ahead and stand up. We're gonna read uh, the scripture this morning. We stand to read scripture as a way of honoring what this is in our lives, as a way of honoring that we have divine revelation before us and its importance in our lives. That's why we do this. That's why we're standing this morning. So God, illuminate your, your, your word and the meaning behind it. Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Verse six, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. (laughs) 
this prophecy that we just read from Isaiah is one of the crux prophecies about who Jesus is about who this Messiah figure is. And it's one of the crux prophecies about the coming of Jesus, about his entrance into human history. You're probably familiar with it. You've probably read it before. You've probably heard it. However many Christmases you've been alive for, you've heard this passage. Now, what Isaiah is describing here is is really fascinating. Even reading it just now, there were more things kind of jumping off the page to me. But Isaiah is specifically describing what it will be like when the Savior comes. What is it going to be like when the Savior comes? And here's how he describes it. He's gonna, he says, it's like when warriors divide plunder. You're like, what is, it gonna, what, is it, what is Jesus supposed to do? It's, it's going to look like that moment when warriors divide the plunder that they've just received. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look like, here's the other example he gives, like when people get excited at a good harvest. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. It's like, whoa, look at all of this. This is 10 times more than we thought. And we have this plant that, you know, that's never borne fruit before. We've never gotten that vegetable in our garden before. We just, it's never happened. And look at this. These, those things last year, they were this small and now they're this big. It's like that. When Christ, when the Savior comes, it's going to be like when warriors divide plunder and when people get excited at a good harvest. Now, this passage is the hopeful uh, part of this passage, and it's juxtaposed to the previous chapter, which describes life without God's activity and voice, and it's really, really bleak. I won't make you turn there. Look up at the screen. This is from Isaiah chapter 8, and this is what he's comparing to uh, the coming of the Messiah to. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. No purpose, no direction. They are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. What is it like when you don't have God's involvement in your life? You know, for even some of us believers who have, who have tasted relationship with Christ and then have had seasons where it seems like he's distant, This would be a good descriptor of it, wouldn't it? What is it like to not have the voice of God in your life? You know, what stands out to me about this this particular passage is that line, roaming through the land. Have you ever been there? Some of you in college are like, that's all that I do. I have no direction in life. I'm just kind of here. My parents told me to do this, so I'm here. Where am I going? No direction, no sense of purpose or meaning. Or what about this line? They they will look toward the earth and see only distress. In other words, they look at the earth and they don't see the beauty of God. They see only what's lacking. And what's the result? Fearful gloom. You ever had fearful gloom? Now, our passage that we just read is is what follows, and it teaches us that the antidote to a wandering life, a life of darkness, the antidote, is God himself setting up his government. Government. Think about that word. That word, I think, is, is a little bit more visceral and real than the word kingdom, especially to those of us who live in the United States. It, it really shows us what's at stake. And what I want to do is I want to walk through this text line by line to unearth the hope of a new government for anyone who feels like they've been walking in darkness or fearful gloom. So you're here this morning, you've been walking in darkness, you have no direction, you've been roaming the land, you're here this morning, and your life could be summed up as, I look out at the world and all I see is distress and I'm living in fearful gloom, you're in luck. 
This is a Sunday for you. There's a new government that's coming, and it begins with a child. It begins with a child. Look down your Bibles, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. Now, you would have read chapter 8 and, and all of the distress and all the darkness and the gloom and the rolling garments and blood and all of that, and you would have thought the answer to that is likely not a child. It's likely some kind of committee or maybe a 501c3 or some kind of organization that's going to get in there and really serve those people in darkness and in gloom and whoever's rolling the garments in blood. You know, we, we need to get some people together, some, some smart minds in the room. But instead, what is given? What is the antidote? It is a child. A child is given. Now, this language, a child is born, a son is given, this language should instantly take your minds to Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 in specific, if you want to write that down, maybe 3.15, you can go visit it. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. In Genesis 3.15, God tells us through a prophecy to expect a human offspring who comes from Eve who will crush the head of the serpent who will crush that serpent that got into the garden, that serpent who's messed with God's original intention, his beauty, his good design, there is one day there's gonna be a child who comes and crushes the head of the serpent. So you have to imagine, anybody hearing Isaiah's prophecy who knew about Genesis would have read this and thought, to us a child, a child is born. Could it be? Could it be that child from Genesis chapter three that God told us was coming? who was going to do what humans were intended to do from the beginning, who would rule over beasts rather than allow beasts to rule over them like Adam and Eve. I think it's him. For to us a child is born, a son is given. Next line. And the government will be on his shoulders. What we learn about this offspring, this savior, who we know is, is Jesus, looking back through the New Testament lens, is that Jesus didn't come for personal salvation only. Like, what? That's a part. But Jesus came to set up a government. What does that mean? Well, think about what a government is. Let's just get like really practical. How do we define government? And hopefully it will help us unearth what's going on here. A government is a management tool. It is a set, it is a management tool to set a standard of life with policies, principles, and a philosophy. What is a government? We all live under a government. A government is a management tool, how to manage large groups of people to set a standard of life or a culture. This is how we live through policies. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. If you do this, you're gonna get punished this way. Through policies, through principles, and through a shared philosophy. So in other words, Jesus came, this child comes to set up a government not so that you can just make it to heaven someday, but so that the principles and policies of heaven would become the standard of life that you exist in. Why did Jesus come? It's a good question. We should ask it. Jesus came not so that you could escape this world and get to heaven, but so that he could establish his government in you so that the policies and the philosophy, the principles of heaven would become the standard of life that you exist in. Now, this part of the passage is so key because humans for thousands of years with the ache of Eden lost within their hearts have attempted to build a government of heaven, but they have always built governments that are lacking and flawed and violate people rather than deliver them into heavenly existence. So look again, what does it say? 
For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, the government comes on his shoulders, not yours. The, the government of heaven comes because of the child of heaven. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit uh, muddled. Let me say it this way. You do not get the kingdom without the king. If in your life you've made any attempt to get the, the, a heavenly existence, but you have done it without Christ as the center, you will find that you have done it out of fear and lack rather than the overflow of relationship with the living spring. But if you get this child, if you center your lives on this child, he's going to bring his government on his shoulders, not yours. And all of a sudden, you'll understand what it means to take up his yoke and his burden. Here's a litmus test. If you are walking through life, and, and in all of your attempts to get the desired life that you have, you have found yourself weighed down with anxiety. If you constantly come, this thought comes to your mind, I'm a Christian, I believe this, but I, my experience is less than this, than, than heaven on earth then you must determine that you are perhaps bringing the government on your shoulders instead of his. You do not get the kingdom without the king. And, and next, what we learn in this passage is that the character of the child, the character of this child that's given, the son that's been born, the Messiah, becomes the culture of the kingdom. The culture of the kingdom, the way that the kingdom works, and the character of the child are linked they are not separate. You don't get one without the other. And so here's what we read next. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. As I was reading this this week, what I realized was that this is the definition passage of the kingdom. Have you ever heard the, the term the kingdom of God and, and wondered, well, what is that? What is the kingdom of God? What, what exactly is it? Is something that we establish here? I remember uh, when I was at, at Fox, my buddy uh, wanted to start a, my buddy Daniel Golder. If you're listening to this, Daniel, I love you, man. My buddy Daniel Golder started a Bible study and he said, I think we should call it the kingdom of heaven Bible study. And I, I, I thought, yeah, that sounds really cool, but what's the kingdom of heaven? And he's like, hmm, it's not a good start if you don't know what the kingdom of heaven is and you're trying to start a kingdom of heaven Bible study. And he's like, I, I don't really know. I just, you know, you see it in the Bible all over the place. Kingdom of heaven sounds good, doesn't it? I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And I said, you know, we should probably name it that because who knows what the kingdom of heaven is anyways? I don't think anybody really knows. <laughs> People know what the kingdom of heaven is. Uh, <laughs> But, but maybe you're here and you're wondering, sh should we vote for it? Is it, is it Jesus for president? Is that, is that how we get the kingdom? Is it, is it a, it's a government, right? So, so how does this exactly work? Well, in this prophecy, we get so much definition as to what this government is, what the kingdom of heaven actually is. And we learn it's kingdom-like king. Since the government's on his shoulders, his character is going to be the foundation of his governing. And we get these four identity statements. Here's what I want to go into. We get these four identity statements about the coming Messiah 
And they speak to what I believe are the four characteristics of kingdom life. So if you've ever wondered, what is the kingdom of God? You are in luck. We're going to look at these four statements and how they create a context for believers to live in, the kingdom of God. The four statements are this, wonderful counselor. Who is this child? Who's this Messiah? He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father, and he's prince of peace. Let's go through each one and see what's on offer. Uh, the first one is wonderful counselor. Now, when you read this, you probably instantly thought of, well, what a counselor does. A counselor is somebody that meets with people and tries to unearth the deep pains of their life and find truth to replace the lies, right? That's what counseling essentially does. Uh, well, in Hebrew, this word counselor has a legal side to it, a legal connotation to it. It can mean a legal representative, a legal representative. And so here's, here's why you need a, a, a wonderful counselor. Here's why you need a wonderful legal representative. Do you in your life feel that incessant voice of guilt? Do you in your life um, feel that sense that the way you feel about the wrong you've done is maybe more than a feeling? Do you ever sense and you look at your life and you say, the things that I've done in my life, I can't just forget about them. I actually need to bring them to someone to be counseled through them. I actually need someone to stand between. I know what I've done is wrong and I need someone to stand between me and justice. This is what a legal counselor does. Why do you do what you do? Why do you have the friends that you have? Do you like them or are they getting you some, somewhere in life? Why do you have the job that you have? Why have you pursued it? Is it for status or are you really, do you really feel a sense of purpose in it given by God? Why do you drive the car that you drive or live in the house that you live in or buy the things that you buy or wear the clothes that you wear? When you ask why enough, every single human will get down to this reason I feel that I'm not enough. There's, no matter what I do, there seems to be this, this almost cosmic legal declaration over my life that I am not enough, that I've been born into brokenness, that I've been born into lack. Why do you need a legal counselor? Because this is not the way that you're supposed to live in the kingdom. You are, you are designed not to justify your life. You are designed to have a legal representative who will stand between you and judgment, between you and justice. And when you have that, when you see what Christ can be, this Messiah that can stand and say, you're righteous because of what I've done, because of the legal declaration that I've made over you. If you have, when you have that, then it does play into the type of counseling you probably thought of when we originally read it. Because what's the primary and general reason for mental anxiety or, or anguish? It's fear. It's guilt. If you were to really get to the bottom of the internal turmoil, it would be lack of love. That's where it all comes from. And so get this, guys. We have not only a legal representative who's able to stand between the wrong things that you've done to wash you clean, to absolve you, to justify your life. Not only do you have that, but you have this, this wonderful, who's ever described a lawyer as wonderful? A wonderful counselor who is able to speak life-altering truth into whatever lie you've believed because he himself is the better word being spoken about your judgment. He is the better word. 
If that doesn't soothe your conscience, I don't know what will. You need to read it again. <laughs> you need to think on it again. We have a wonderful counselor in this kingdom. So you enter the kingdom of God and all of, all of a sudden you get an internal witness, this wonderful counselor who begins to absolve you, begins to soothe the conscience, to, to warm the heart, to, to make forgiveness, uh, to, to make you really feel it. <laughs> Do you really feel it? The wonderful counselor. Second characteristic of this king is that you get an everlasting father. What is the kingdom like? You get an everlasting father. You know, as we learn more and more about the human psyche and about family systems and codependence, we're learning just how much of our present reality is based upon the relationship that one had with their dad in the past. So much of what, how you live today is based on the father that you had, which is, as a dad, that's a terrifying thing to think about. Some counselor one day will be helping Georgie, I'm sure. Um, but you know, you just think about the power of a father. Think about the power of a father. What can a dad do when they're at their best for a, for a child? A, a dad is there to give identity creation. Like what, what does a dad do? A dad is, is to say, hey, um, I'll just use myself as an example. Georgie, this is how Retmans live. Georgie, these are the values that we carry as a family. Georgie, th this is what you were intended to do. I haven't, just, I, haven't, I, don't just, I haven't just looked at the world or even just looked at your skills in the way that it might interact with the world. I've gone to the Holy Spirit and asked the Holy Spirit, who is this child so that I can position myself to train them up in the way that they should go? That's what a father can do. A father can say, but what do you say about my child? I'm there. Dads are there for identity creation. Dads are there for security, for protection, and for inspiration. So you come along a child and you protect that child from things that that child should not encounter at the specific ages that they go through. You, you, you physically protect them. You, you inspire them. Hey, this is what I see in you. What if you tried this? What, 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 hey, you made that? That's incredible. You should keep going. You should make another one. I think that one of the primary jobs of a dad is encouragement. If you did nothing else, I'm saying this to myself too, if we did nothing else as fathers but just positioned ourselves to encourage our children, can you imagine what would happen if, if, if our children, as they grew up, they then looked back on their, looked back on their childhood and they said, my dad was the biggest encouragement of my life. Out of my whole life, it was my father who was the biggest encourager. What a dad can do is just incredible. They can, a dad, I think, aids in, in stewarding the heart and mind of a child. Hey, you don't need to think about that. Hey, what they said, that's not true. That's a lie. Let's replace it with truth right now. That's what a father can do. And what this is saying is that in God, you can have a father, regardless of however your dad was that you grew up with. As I even said some of those things instantly right now, if you're a dad, you're going, ooh, do I do that? Me too, I'm in the same boat. It's a call. But you might also be sitting there and be thinking, you don't know what, I, what kind of dad I had. You don't know the kind of dad that I've been. In God, you can have a father, regardless of the dad that you had here on earth, who can do those things for you at any hour of the day and who will never die and will never leave you. It's an eternal father. It's an eternal father. And I would put forth to you today that this, this idea of God being your father, that is the only true anchor. It is the only thing in your life that you can really thrust your life upon in dependence. So you enter the kingdom, you get the, the child brings his government and he's gonna be an everlasting father for those of you who need that in their lives. 
Third quality, mighty God. Now, this one could seem simple. Maybe you read this one, you're like, mighty God, I, I kind of get it. You know, how great is our God, right? We, we sing that song. Um, what this means is that God is powerful. Another range of meaning here for, uh, for mighty can include the, uh, the idea of a warrior. Warrior. <laughs> nice. Um, warrior God. So, so what, what this, like if you kind of go, okay, God's a warrior, God's mighty, like let's bring that down to earth. What does that practically mean for my life today? It sounds cool. But what it means is this, is that in God's kingdom, when you live in his kingdom, he can do something about your situation. He can do something about your situation so that not only is God powerful, but you then are powerful because you're no longer held captive by your circumstance. This is something Andoni taught me years ago. I remember when you told me this, he said, you're supposed to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. I was like, okay, what are you, what are you talking about? You're supposed to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. In other words, you're, as a believer, because you have a mighty God, you're not the kind of person who walks into a room and just takes on whatever temperature is going on in that room. You were designed to walk into the room and the room changes because you walked into the room. You carried an entire culture with you. You carried the government with you to such a degree. A mighty God is with you that your circumstances began to change because of you. Not because you didn't walk into a situation and just take on whatever anybody thought or whatever the critique was or whatever people are doing or whatever culture they have. You have a stronger culture within you because you have a mighty God. Lastly, this government is a government of people because of peace, because we have a prince of peace, a prince of peace. Lastly, this one's really cool. The Hebrew word for prince here is sar, uh, which is, is more often translated commander, captain, or chief. So you, you think about of Jesus, and what is Jesus? He's the commander of peace or the captain of peace. It's kind of funny to, to think about this military word being used to describe someone who is peace. The king of this kingdom has a military mandate, and it is to pr promote and protect peace. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is in charge of peace. He's the strategist for peace. Without his battle plan, there will be no peace. Okay, so let's put it all together. Let's put all of these characteristics of the king together. What is the kingdom like? Next slide. What is the kingdom? It's an internal relationship with this child, this savior, who will bring about very real and physical things in your life as a result. Next slide. It's having the king set up his government of legal counsel, fathering, the power of God, and peace in your internal world so that you produce the intentions and will of God through your external world. It's like, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is an internal rule with this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father, this mighty God, this prince of peace. When you get the king, the kingdom is produced through your life. You no longer are making decisions based upon fear or lack, or what will this pe people think, or what, what, what will happen if I do this? I have a father who's saying this about me. I have a mighty God who can actually change the circumstance. I'm gonna go to him and pray and ask for things to change. I'm gonna consult him and I, I need counsel. What's going on? I feel guilty about this and it's messing with my mind. Counsel me through it. Do you have that? Okay. Do you have the child who produces his government? He didn't just come to get you into heaven. He came to get heaven into you through his rule so that then heaven would come through you. 
You know, when Jesus comes to earth, here's how Mark records the very first words of his ministry. This is the very first thing Jesus says in his ministry. He says this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. All of Jesus' ministry was aimed at partnership. It was aimed at recovering what was lost in Eden. So so Jesus doesn't come on the scene and go, hey, you need to repent because there's this moral standard that God has and he's really disappointed if you don't meet the moral standard. Eventually, the moral standard is upheld through the rulership of the king. But initially, it's this. Repent and change your thinking because there is an entirely new way of thinking required to exist in this kingdom. In the language of Thomas Traherne, it's you need to give all for all. You were living one way. You, 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 you had an entirely different culture, but you've entered the kingdom. And when you entered the kingdom, you got a new culture. So it's give all. Give all of that up so that you can get all. Give all for all. Give all for all. It's give all of the things that the ways that you used to think, the fears that used to run your life. As believers, when we find those fears cropping up, when we find them popping up, don't be surprised. It's called pruning, right? They're things to get pruned, but it's I need to give all for all. I need to give all for all. And when you do that, you will find yourself with a counselor and a father and a warrior and a prince of peace, which is the very thing that you need. So this Advent season, if you're walking in darkness, confused about life, if you don't have direction, a light has dawned, a child is born, and the government, this new reality, is on his shoulders. Are you guys awake? Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, one last thing. Can I do one more thing? Okay. Um, I want you to look back down at verse seven. This is just fascinating. It says this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, notice this next line. Fascinating. He will reign on whose throne? David's throne. And over his kingdom. Now, this caught my attention a couple of years ago. We, in fact, we actually had a whole series called The Throne of David where we went through the Psalms and just looked at what was David's throne? How did he rule? What was David's kingdom? David's throne. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, you would think that when God prophesies about Jesus coming, he would say something like this. You've never seen a throne like this before. You've never seen a king like this before. He's going to establish Yahweh's throne. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says he's going to reign on David's throne. David's throne. Why David's throne? Perhaps the obvious reason is that David was the king of Israel and Jesus is coming to be that true king of Israel. But still, what was the quality of David's kingdom? He could have picked a different king from Israel's history. Why David? I want to propose to you this morning that David so impressed God with his life and the character of his kingdom that God didn't want to do his own thing. He wanted to do David's thing. You're like, I don't know. Does God want to do our things? Yeah, there's examples all throughout the Old Testament of God changing his mind and actually doing the thing that Moses desires, desired or Abraham desired because it's about partnership. If you don't, okay, here we go. If you don't believe that God is good enough to do your thing, then you don't believe in the goodness of God to the degree that he's actually good. God is interested in the variable. It's why he made you. He's interested in what you will choose. It's why he designed you. He's not interested in robots who just are constantly, okay, yes, whatever you want. Yes, whatever you want. It come, the kingdom comes through submission. You get it through submitting to the king. But once you're in the kingdom, he goes, and what's on your mind? 
And you know what was on David's mind? David's mind was this. I wanna build a, I wanna build a house for you. God didn't ask him to build a house for him. <laughs> Why is he building a house for him? God never asked him to do that because it was in the mind and the heart of David that God would have the ability to dwell amongst his people because David ruled his kingdom this way. David ruled his kingdom that in the presence of God, all the right things grow and all the wrong things die. The best thing for my family, the best thing for my friends, the best thing for my dorm room, the best thing for my kingdom is that the presence of God would be tangible and felt. So much so that when God goes, oh, a child is born, a son is given, the government's coming on his shoulders and he's gonna rule on David's throne. Why? Because it's not a kingdom of duty, it's a kingdom of presence that leads to partnership and produces the kingdom around you. That's why. You just read the Psalms. Like, read the Psalms, and here's what you'll find. In the Psalms, you will find that David found that he could trust God as the wonderful counselor. How much of the Psalms is David going, you should curse those people that hate me. You should bring about your justice. That's the way, you know, you know what, that, that, that's lawyer talk. That's the stuff you don't tell to your friends, you don't tell to your spouse, you don't tell to anybody, you tell to your lawyer. We should figure out how to get them. And David's like, I got a wonderful counselor. I'm living in his kingdom. Mighty God. He found him as everlasting father and prince of peace. So the kingdom that David promoted reflected the kingdom that God had set up within him. David was the first thermostat. Well, maybe Abraham, but David's one of them, all right? David's one of the first people that we see who so had an internal reality that it became his external reality to the degree that he set an entire kingdom up around the very presence of God. So here's the invitation this Christmas. What would happen if you were to speak to God the way that, that David spoke to God? What, if you, what would happen if you were to take this seriously and you were to say, okay, it's, it's David's kingdom. I'm gonna live like David. I'm gonna tell you what I really think. I'm gonna choose to praise you. I'm gonna come to you with honesty. I'm not gonna fake it. I wonder if you would find a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. When you get this king in you, you get his kingdom through you. And that is the message of Christmas and this child coming. Would you stand? Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.